0: The expert level information and the team and education. Rev, here we got you covered as you hit your destination. climb the rules, everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye now. The world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the hip hop call.
1: Well, I'm excited for this interview because I have a very dear friend of mine here on the coolest show, uh Kareen Taylor. Kareen, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay, you know. I'm not gonna say great, but I'm doing okay. We're hanging in there, you know. Every day is a new day.
1: Okay, uh, well, you know, I want to I want to get all into that because I think that you know, first of all, Kareen, I just want to say you are really an amazing leader and this powerful activist. Um, for those who don't know, Kareen, Kareen is the director, of federal legislative affairs at We Act for Environmental Justice. Um, She is a social justice advocate who has worked tirelessly in the areas of environmental justice, civil rights, and voter protection. She is the Director of Federal Legislative Affairs at WEAC for Environmental Justice, one of my favorite organizations for so many reasons. And she is the former Policy Director for Green for All. Corrine is focused on ensuring that communities of color lead and speak for themselves as we address the importance of challenges of climate change and the climate crisis. To that end, she believes it is imperative that people of color and women have access to economic opportunities in the clean energy sector. She has shared her insight and experiences as a speaker at various events including Afropunk, Broccoli City Fest, the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, and the Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference, CBC, as we call it. Just to name a few, she's a member of many organizations and associations, including the world's largest and most influential sorority founded for Black women, Delta, Sigma, Theta, Sorority, Incorporated.
0: Incorporated, thank you. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I love that. You, you know who my mentor was? I don't know if you know this. Dr. Uh, Dr. Dorothy Height was my mentor. Wow. Yes, it's a famous story. Yeah, I was like the, the the little redhead person she would reference sometimes and talk about. That was me. So that was, and I was able to be around her, uh, like literally, I guess, from her late 70s and 80s. So, yeah. That's awesome.
0: Little
1: Little, little fun fact there. In well, the I process, so everything. you know, I know, so I know all about the ladies <laughs> of Delta Sigma Theta, the Incorporated. <laughs> you know, I I no,
0: I'm just so proud um, of my experience, and um, I say it all the time. Being a Delta was one of the best choices I made professionally. Just really, there's so many um, Deltas who do environmental justice work. Uh, Dr. Adrienne Hollis. I know you've had her on. She's a Delta. Yes,
1: Dr. Hollis. I, you know, that's I, I did. I did know she was. Yes.
0: Delta. Um,
1: who who else did you mention?
0: Fairchild.
1: Okay. Yes. I didn't know that.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Deltas that do EJ. I mean, they're I mean, in general, you know, they're going to be sorority representation and fraternity representation in social justice work. It's a lot of our missions are really aligned there. So.
1: No, I like that. So Douglas are keeping the water clean and the air clean. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. So letting y'all know oh they 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 done threw down threw down the challenge. Actually but you know, we know with uh with Vice President Harris, you know, she's an AKA, big on EJ. So you wanna give a shout out to the AKA's and and
0: that's a um, a network that I'm really trying to focus on how to harvest the huge numbers of um, people in black sororities and fraternities to engage around our issues. So many of them are healthcare workers and doctors, professionals, teachers. So many of them are educators and business owners too. So making those connections, I think, is really
1: it is actually no, and and we 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 need that to happen.
0: Before we get into that.
1: I want to we kind of we kind of got a little bit I mean I gave your you know your, your business your your advocate your warrior bio and all that good stuff but for folks who just want to know more about you personally like the woman the advocate who is Kareem Taylor
0: Awesome. I'm first generation Jamaican. My family, both my mom and my dad, um, you know, came here to make a better life. And I'm just the product, I think, of their really hard work. Um, I'm an H. I did. I didn't. I actually didn't know that. Like who names like Kareen is such a typical Caribbean name.
1: It is. Now now that you said it, now that you said it, it's like, well, my you know, I, I obviously go by Rev, but my first name is Lennox. Or Lenox, they would say, and people from the Caribbean. Lenox. <laughs> that's amazing. So like now you got like a whole strong like uh sorority fraternity and now like like Jackie Patterson, a whole strong Caribbean connection. That's wonderful. I didn't know that. Well
0: actually that's just a lot though. I'm sorry,
1: keep going. So you were right. That
0: Um, First generation, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up right right outside of Chicago in Evanston. And um, I'm so proud that I can say this, that like my elementary school principal made sure that all of us black, white, Latino knew the words to lift every voice and sing. And we would Mm. sing every, you know, Black History Month and like those kinds of, you know, Uh, pride in Blackness was something that I was exposed to really young. Um, I went to Fisk University for undergrad, and that's, you know, um, a really important and prestigious school that's connected to the civil rights movement. So that's like John Diane Nash. Um, And, you know, I've just kind of always been kind of drawn to political work. I've I've done stuff, you know, on campaigns and um, really... Excited that you know I got that experience. Campaigning is hard, but it really teaches you how to push yourself and become a jack of all trades. Um, and I helped uh, elect Andrea Stewart-Cousins, who um, I believe is the first Black woman to now lead New York State Senate. Um, and you know, just really proud to have had those kinds of experiences. I, I did fundraising for her and for candidates. Um, raising money is the biggest part and. For black candidates, especially, that's such a difficulty. And so like, learning that skill was something, you know, I've tried to, you know, really just kind of hone in. And that's even just communicating and, and finding commonalities with people so that they can support your issue and money as a way to support. So that was an experience that I've had. But um, while I was at law school at FAMU College of Law, I. Come on now. So, so you went to two. Were two HBCUs.
1: Come w. on now.
0: Double it up. Come um, now. <laughs> but I I went to a like a talk about um, farm worker issues in Florida, and all of the women who were talking about being exposed to pesticides were black and Latino, and all of the lawyers were white men. And I was like, mm. what are the black lawyers? You know, and that um, my law school professor for civil procedure, um, Abrams, professor Abrams, he was like, you should go intern at the EPA. And I was like, okay, sure. Okay. And he, I, I, I did a program called NAFIO, and they help place, um, students of color HBCU students um, in federal agencies. And that's how I got exposed to the EPA. That's how I met Mustafa. That's who, how I met, Quint, uh, professor, um, Quentin Pear. I just, mm. I, you know, um, just a whole, a whole um, let, let's see, a whole bunch of folks. Uh, Marsha Mentor, um, you know, a lot of those folks that worked in, in the EPA, and this was back in like two thousand and nine, two thousand and eight. And I just got to learn about EJ and see it from their perspective, from how it's handled within the agencies. Pat Carey, I got to work with her. Wow. Um, and and all of that like led to We Act, you know. Um, i, I worked I did a fellowship at the Lawyers Committee uh, for Civil rights under Law, and that was, you know, campaign style, but um still focused on voting rights. And that was another really interesting foray into like d c living. And I guess even i'll I'll share personal stuff, too, like, I'm just a regular Black girl, you know, that's out here that really cares about Black people. I know people always ask like, why do you care about the environment? I was like, because I <laughs> care about Black people, you know what I mean? When we really get to the heart of why environmental justice issues exist, it's because of racism and systemic long- with economic disinvestment, redlining, all of those historical things that we learn about then create these communities that are more polluted than their white counterparts or you know, just why we have high rates of asthma and a whole host of other problems. So um, I just genuinely love and care about our people and that's what brought me to do this work.
1: Uh, that is amazing. You said a lot there. First, I think now with all the, The the black Greeks you mentioned, I'm gonna have to give it like a little shout out. Like, shout out to Mustafa Ali and Alpha for Alpha. I might have all the Greeks, all the Greeks as you call them out. I might have to try to, we may may go through the the Divine Nine by the time we get through this conversation. Um, You said a lot there though, Kareem. I actually want to take one step back because some folks may not know you mentioned Fisk and Diane Nash and that connection. And so, just kind of give a little bit of background on that what 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 the importance of fisk i would say as an hbcu but also for our civil rights movement um because i think that's important for those who don't know the history sometimes i think a lot of folks are now getting becoming aware of hbcus um and sometimes they hear a lot about certain HBCUs, which is good but i think that that history is important as we redis- rediscover that so Talk about why why Fisk and like why Diane Nash and and others were important in that process.
0: So um, as a first generation kid, like college was this thing that I made a lot of the decisions on my own. Um, And when I thought about HBCUs, of course, it's like different world. And then from different world and even the Cosby show them exposing us to Spellman to Morehouse, cause that's where I guess the campus base was for um, Hillman was the visuals for Spellman yeah. and Morehouse. Um, but then as it got personal to me, I, for my high school class, I had, I was taking US AP history. Well, hold on
1: Kareem, real quick, for all those who are listening, who are not familiar with a different world, we are not saying uh, there is no, uh, there's no planet B. <laughs> There actually was a show called "A Different World" that we Love. So this is making sure that it was all about the HBCU experience. Just making sure for yeah, y'all that thinking show that
0: changed my life. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, I, in, in many ways, I've said this a few times. I totally think I'm Freddie from a different world. And you know, oh, that's very insightful. You know. Um, <laughs> But between the Cosby show, Stress on Education, and then different roles, specifically showing and highlighting the experience of these really young, vibrant people at Mm. historical Black colleges, I was like, oh, I want to do that. And in high school, I took USAP history, and I had to choose a book, and I was procrastinating, and I chose The Black Reconstruction by who? W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm. And that's a thick book. It's like 600 pages, and I read it in like a weekend, not because like I'm a really fast reader but I had never been exposed to black history like that. Um, where we were senators and and congressmen and we were these entrepreneurs, like typically of course, when we get our black education in high school or middle school, it's Martin Luther King, you know, maybe, you know, I remember reading about Phyllis Wheatley and she was a poet, but it's really like short and just these, you know, a few people. But I remember reading that book, like, wow, we did some amazing things right after the Civil War. And I remember looking at the back, like, who wrote this book? And it said, W.E. Wood Boyce Fisk University. And that made, led me to Fisk. And, you know, that, again, was a really great experience. Fisk is a small private um, college in Nashville, Tennessee. Right. Um, the found, you know, it was founded, of course, right after the Civil War as well, 1866. And the um, the the. The biggest part about Fisk that we really like to share is that it was the students who saved the school. The Jubilee Singers Mm. um, were, again, former slaves who were at Fisk University trying to get an education. They toured the world singing Negro Spirituals and introduced that whole Um, that whole form of that art form to the world. And they raised enough money to build the first permanent structure for education in, I believe, the city for Black people, um, not only in Nashville, but in Tennessee. And so Jubilee Hall, it's like still there at Fisk. I got to live in it my sophomore year. And so Fisk being this small private school, you know, has always just been, I think, a really um, especially during like Harlem Renaissance time, the 60s, the 70s um, has been like a real haven for like black thinking and black uh, political awareness. And so, of course, in the 60s, all of the social unrest was unrest was happening. John Lewis, D- Diane Nash, um, Bernard Lafayette, I think he mm-hmm. went to um, American Baptist College that was close by. Um, so many people in Nashville, in North Carolina, in the South were saying, you know, we're tired of this treatment. And so HBCUs became like these centers for social action and, and, and that training of like how to be nonviolent. And of course, we know John Lewis's experience now, um, you know, he's, he's gone on, but, um, you know, his great work in um, Congress and all of that and advancing voting rights work there. But, you know, learning about our history from that perspective was really critical for me, um, and it helped kind of just grow my awareness and and my view of social justice work. So I'm really glad that you know HBCUs exist, and I'm a very big amen. Sur- I'm owner of those. Yep.
1: No, amen. Shout out to the late great Congressman John Lewis. Um, uh, I'm going through my list here, y'all, from five data Sigma. <laughs> fraternity, as I, as I work work through my divine nine here with Kareem. With Kareem, uh, you have become known for us in our movement as one of the most articulate, um, informed folks on legislation and policy. That has kind of become your thing. And not only from our community, meaning uh, BIPOC communities, but also just in general, the climate movement now listens to your um, analysis on the environment. So what does the environment actually mean to you and what is climate justice?
0: Environment is everything where you are is your environment. You know, I know we, we quote uh, Bob Bullard's, it's where you work, live, pray, you know, go to school. Um, Your, your environment is everywhere. And I think um, I like to run and like go for really long walks and You can see so much about how a city, a county, a state treats its people by what their environment looks like. And if you go for a long enough walk, you'll see the changes and you'll be able to understand, oh, this is where the black people live or this is where the white people live. This is where the more affluent people live, you know, depending on the the number of grocery stores, the number of liquor stores, the number of green spaces and parks and the, the quality of the sidewalks. All of those things are small indicators of unfortunately how we value people and you know what do you what do you mean by that there's there's going to be less investment you know like um when i when i live in dc i live in southeast i live across the bridge i live where the majority of the black people live um that are you know longtime dc natives and the the quality of the number of grocery stores is smaller over here. The quality Mm -hmm. of the grocery stores, it's just not the same as it is in northwest or closer to the cap, um, you know, on on Capitol Hill. And again, that's that disinvestment um, of of our communities. We want fresh food. We we need fresh food. But the access to it, you know, in terms of food deserts or food mirages or whatever is isn't there, Um, you know, and then limitations around home ownership and just like years of not having the same opportunities that white people had around loan home ownership with getting bank loans, all of those kinds of things lead to more of us being in multifamily um, homes and in apartment buildings and you know, not having a vested stake in our communities the same way that, you know, people who are more affluent who own their homes do. So all of that, you can see it in communities. They're not as well kept. You know, I, I just did a um, a cleanup for MLK Day with a commissioner here, Salim Dofo, And, you know, they, they don't clean up my side of town the same way they do. Mm. It, right.
1: Is that, is that intentional?
0: Do you it think it's intentional? It. Sometimes it can be. Sometimes it can be or just having those same level of resources right or the roads, the quality of the roads, you know, in terms of what they look like on our side like my car goes through so many potholes right and but then there'll be things that indicate that things are changing and you want that change, but it also um, like frankly, if you see a white woman with a dog <laughs> in the hood, you know things are about to change, right? And resources will start showing up, unfortunately, when more white people show up and that's not fair. And and there's always this challenge with environmental justice work when we want to clean up our communities, when we demand more parks that then, the byproduct of that is gentrification because then it becomes more attractive to real estate and development and then the very communities that are working to improve their communities are then um unfortunately they could be priced out because a developer can say oh look they cleaned up the hudson river like you know we act tried we act work we act work in new york and then you want to develop more and then it'll be more high-rise apartments and things that the pe- the people who've lived there for decades can't afford so it's this weird dichotomy of we want better but what does that mean for how we stay and thrive in this community and it, it's a challenge it's a challenge so when i think about the environment you know your skin you know um the um er, you know they, they say every day you put on however many products with your hair with your hands your makeup all of that and your your own personal environment is impacted by the inability of the federal government to update our regulations around um, the Food and Drug Administration and what's allowed in our skincare products, what's allowed in our personal care products and all the, the harmful chemicals and the parabens and all of these things that are, we put into our bodies to look good, to smell good, to feel good. And Black women, um, more than any other group, are impacted by that because a lot of the products that are sold to us, whether it's a relaxer or you know the things, the hot oil, air tre- hair treatments, or however, a whole host of things, are harming our bodies too, then that impacts how early we have periods. That impacts our ability to have children and even the children that we have. So mm. there's so many ways that, you know, the, the the communities of black, brown, indigenous people are impacted by the decisions of other people who don't always, one, don't look like us and don't necessarily um, care about us in the same way that they care about more affluent people.
1: So what you're saying is that there are industries who will who know that we are utilizing their products. They're not regulated. And those products can actually cause us harm in a way um, from our health, our mental now, we're not talking about gorilla glue, right? We ain't talking hey, about Oh my God. <laughs> We ain't talking about no gorilla glue. We need to be clear, y'all. <laughs> we ain't going that route. We something we know we ain't supposed to put in our hair. But we're talking about the things that are marketed to us that should have gone through regulation, right?
0: <laughs> I think it's been over 80 years that the Food and Drug Administration has updated their regulations on um, personal care and skin care products, all of that. So um, how much? how many new products, how many new chemicals have been created in 80 years? and there's no regulation there right and so sometimes a product will be labeled as organic or natural but there's really no regulation on that and so you don't know like oh let me get you know i'm gonna go down the aisle to the ethnic aisle (laughs) where they sell my hair products and i might pick up pink oil moisturizer every little girl used pink oil moisturizer as a kid or just for me that relaxer you know that was marketed to us but those things were incredibly harmful and still are being sold and still are impacting, you know, young kids every single day, women every single day, men, even men, when you, you know, go to the barbershop and whatever your barber is using to, you know, the whatever they, after you, you get your haircut and whatever they're putting on your scalp and your face, that's going directly into your pores. And there's no regulation on that. And so we don't even realize all the ways that we're harmed, you know, and and um, polluted and, and, and ingesting things in so many different ways.
1: You know, Korean, I wanna piggyback on something you just said. I think it's very important. You mentioned about, you know, the white woman with the dog as a kind of a a a flag to those and in, in certain communities that, that their community is changing, gentrification. And for folks who need to understand that there's a cultural component. When you're living in a community that has been either black or brown or indigenous for so long, you begin to see Folks who refuse to live in those communities now living in those communities. But that is also a sign um, that is also the, the canary, so to speak, um, in the coal mine that says that you are also going to be moved out of this. And a lot of times people see that and they, be, they don't want their community to become better because it isn't becoming better for them. How do we then, as you are trying to then connect the dots here with the environment and making sure that, you know, that things are cleaned up, that we have these bike paths and we're doing all these all these climate legislation. Um, how do we ensure that 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 it actually is for the community who lives there?
0: You know this, and I think sometimes we don't realize this. So much of what we see in how a community is developed is a plan that was determined maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm. And if we don't participate in these really boring <laughs> meetings on a Tuesday <laughs> at 3.30 or Friday at five, you know, whenever the weird time they they have these meetings, we are left out of the decision-making process. We are left out of the ability to have um, a say and that meaningful engagement. And that is a key um, policy and a key term in environmental justice work is having that meaningful engagement with communities. And historically it'll be an or you know, a planner. Uh, an official, whomever, making a decision, and then they'll start it. And then the community's like, wait a minute, we didn't know anything about that. Or it'll be, hey, we decided to do this, what you guys think? Instead of saying, hey, we'd like to develop this 20 year plan, who isn't at the table? And so we have to, and that's been a big part of the EJ movement, changing that conversation to say, right at the beginning of a process, what community members are not here who would be mm. impacted by this who needs to be at the table and that is at the core i think of um probably to say we acts work we act works um at the city level the state level and federally now to do that community involvement, educating our community on what those processes like um, processes are in terms of um, you know showing up at the city council to make a, to testify or showing up at this meeting or being a part of an implementation plan for you know right after Superstorm Sandy we got we were part of a coalition that brought hundreds of people together in New York to talk about how do we how do we prepare for these extreme weather conditions how do we Um, put build in sustainability and resiliency into communities in advance? Because we know these storms are going to always come. We know extreme weather is going to always come. But how do we let communities be a part of that planning process? So that work um, that We Act has done, that a number of environmental justice organizations have done for decades, is I think what we see now trickling up to the state level, to the federal level, to now where we have, you know, This whole new Biden administration talking about environmental justice in a way that we have never heard in, I've never heard presidential um, administrations talk about EJ in this way, right? And it's because of years and years and years of the Bob Bullers, of the Beverly Wrights, of the Peggy Shepherds, the Cecil Corbin Marks, the Tom. Tom Goldtooth, the Elizabeth Yampiers, all of those people doing that work that in many ways is that agitating, like, hey, this isn't right, this isn't what it should be, this is what it needs to be, And, and causing people to change how they interact with us. And that's how it's trickling up, and that's why we're like, wait a minute, well, how many more committees do you need me on? Like, how many more advisory boards? You know, like we've never been, I think, engaged in this way, and it's because of those decades of agitation and and pushback and 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 protest and and showing up in meetings and testifying and issue, you know, submitting comments. So it's it's been this layer and layer and layer layer of work that is now trickling up and changing the national conversation around environmental justice.
1: Kareem, you you said a lot there, and you mentioned a lot of. I think you might have went through I, I, our divine nine with the list you just gave, and maybe throughout in that process. But I definitely want to highlight a couple things. You mentioned We Act. I love We Act. Um, you mentioned Peggy Shepard um, as as one of our luminaries. Um, who is Peggy Shepard? And also, uh, a dear friend of mine passed last year, who was also at We Act, uh, Cecil. Um, maybe you can just give a little insight into them as people, not just the organization, but what they mean, what they meant to the EJ movement. But also I just realized something that you have stayed the course working within your community. You've gone to a black college, you went to a black law school, you've worked now with uh, black organizations. Why is that important as well?
0: So, about WE Act, you know, WE Act was founded 32 years ago in Harlem. Um, Peggy Shepard, Bernice Miller Travis, Chuck Sutton founded it. And they were, you know, there was a big sanitation issue in the city and they mobilized around that. And I, they won a very big lawsuit against the state and they used that money to create WEACT. Act. And um, the work that WE Act's done. Has just totally been about how to do that meaningful engagement of the Black and Brown people there, um, the poor people there, um, to make sure that they could be a part of the creation of sound environmental health policies and practices. That was our mission statement. I'm learning it. I know it by heart. Yeah, um, <laughs> but, but our um, that work also then created. You know, when we think about um, Executive Order twelve eight nine eight, which just turned. 27 yesterday. Wow! You know they were a part of you know they and a whole number of environmental justice leaders were a part of you know um, advocating and working with the with the Clinton administration to get that passed and you know um, the 1991 people's um, the, the them coming together to put together the the principles of environmental justice all of that work um, that happened in 1991 and all of that like there's just been so many instances where they've come together to advance the movement and so we act. You know, I'm proud to say I'm, I I work for an organization that has been a leader in the environmental justice movement. And Peggy is a fiery, cute little woman that doesn't play with nobody. And it's been my privilege to learn from her. Cecil, um, dear Cecil, like ah, I hate when I have to talk about Cecil. I admired him so much. He was so sharp. He was so... <laughs> intelligent like he knew and he was so strategic like I, I I, want to grow in my ability to be as strategic as he was and he he just knew and understood policy in a way that advanced EJ you know not only within the city and the state of New York but nationally and you know he just passed in October and he's dearly missed dearly missed. Um, Vernice you know is here um, and she's done some great work um and, and she also still serves on our board, uh, but you know these are people that I get to call like mentors, and I can text and call them and ask them the dumbest questions. Because as much as I I get, I'm told that I I'm I, I'm I'm such a great communicator. I'm learning from them. Like I'm reading them. I've I don't know how many times I've pulled up Peggy's presentations. On YouTube and just watched and listened to them, you know what I mean, and and hear how she talks about things, and that helps me develop how I'm talking about things. Or all the times that I've gone um, and with Cecil for a presentation, or for him or talking with an office, and just listening and le- learning how to communicate and to deliver our message in a way that is cogent, but also very clear that you know these things are firm. We're firm on these things, and I'm, I'm grateful for their example and for their leadership, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm the kid in the room, you know, I'm, I'm a baby EJ advocate, like I'm, I'm a baby in this work and, you know, I get to step in their really huge footsteps once in a while and I don't take for granted um, at all of the work that they've done. And, you know, you know like if, if, like they've been doing this work about how long I've been alive, right? And so, like, I and sometimes I'm like, why don't I know enough? And it's like, well, I've only been doing this for a small amount of time in comparison to people who've dedicated their entire lives to, you know, the environmental justice movement. So just really proud. No, of- definitely. Of-
1: no, they, no, well, no, they are, everybody you name there, Bernice, uh, Peggy, Cecil, um, you mentioned Dr. Bob Willard earlier, obviously Beverly Wright, there's so many people we can just continue to name. And that brings a point up, though, because you you talked about Cecil in the present context, and we know he passed now, some months back. Um, That means that he has, there's still an impact there, obviously, that will never go away. But that means to you, there's still that he's almost like he's not gone in some aspects. Is that a correct statement?
0: He's, um he was amazing. It's hard to, not, like, it's hard to be like, oh, I can't text Cecil or I can't call him. I mean, his impact and then hearing other people who've worked with him over the years, um, talk about him. It's like, oh, I'm so, I know when I, um, left to work at Green For All, I knew I needed to come back to WEACT. I knew I needed, there was so much more that I wanted to learn from Peggy and Cecil. And that was a big part of why I came back. And it was, the best decision for me professionally and and, and um, you could also ask like why I'm so like I I clearly am like I've gone to black schools I typically thrive the best when I work for black people because there is a connection I'm just connected to I I just care so much and so being aligned with people who care equally or more about our issues in our in our communities um, is is important to me and so Cecil, was that you know, Cecil? Not only did he know and care about Harlem, but he knew and cared about D.C. He knew and he knew and cared about you know the people in Mississippi, the people in Georgia. He he always would reach out to you know Harambe House and Dr. McLean and 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 try to support them. And the work that um, we do through the Environmental Justice Leadership Forum. Was totally about building that power, and he always talked about building the power of grassroots EJ groups and helping them with capacity and capacity being, you know, money to actually pay staff and do their programs, and and then also, um, you know, the technical support in terms of, you know, how to do the policy locally and then how to engage federally. So he had a a a broad and big vision for not only we act but the ej forum and for the larger environmental justice movement and he was a giving person there's so many stories that people have shared about how he you're gonna totally make me cry how
1: well i'm I'm already crying so we 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 both both here together i'm already in tears on this side
0: (laughs) but no he's 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 really missed he really is
1: we definitely uh i don't think people understand how much we this this work takes um so that's how a little i'm gonna give my sister a second and uh and we're gonna we gonna uh let you know this is why we why we do this work you know Kareem, i i wanna um as i give you i, I gave you, i gave you one second <laughs> as i gave you what i gave you one second there i i i just wanna say that um You know, you are a triple threat from this aspect. You are clearly someone who has the demonstration, the legislation, and the litigation part down of this process. So, um, you know, you recently testified at a virtual congressional hearing titled uh, Back in Action, Restoring Federal Climate Leadership. And in your testimony, you gave three high-level recommendations. Um, addressed climate change uh, starting with passing the environmental justice for all act addressing legacy pollution and a federal push to expedite the transition to good paying green energy jobs to regain ground we lost due to the pandemic you said yourself that these suggestions only scratched the surface so what else is needed and how does it Compared to the policy, the U.S. has already implemented
0: mm, so much. You know, um, cumulative impacts is something that you know um, EJ groups have been demanding, and that is to break it down. Um, typically, when um, a like a, a facility, a power plant, a company, they're looking for a permit. Um, uh, they usually, you know, there's always some type of an environmental analysis and it would it doesn't always take into consideration what existed before that facility wants to build whatever it is they want to build and that is problematic because data shows that race is the biggest indicator of where the most harmful facilities are and if we aren't thinking about you know what already exists in a community okay there's a landfill over here that's 2 miles here there's a power plant 30 miles here, there's a school in the middle, there's a church right here, there's um, this lake that people fish at, there is, you know, um, there's, you know, a senior citizen home. If we aren't looking holistically at a community and thinking about all of the the harm that's already there, Hmm. we are going to further harm them if we don't do that, right? And so cumulative impact says, take a minute, slow down, Let's count and look at all the ways this one community is impacted already by existing issues. And if this new facility is built, how will it further that harm? And that is something that we need critically um, within our communities. I know, you know, we think about Louisiana and Cancer Alley. And the reason why those types of places exist where there's so many high rates of cancer and all of these other types of ailments is because those communities are inundated with too many facilities. Years, And whether it's, you know, you know oil refineries or petrochemical um, companies having their um, facilities down there and all the fumes and all of the um, pollution that's emitted. And it's so many, instances of just too many things in one place. And so if we take a step back and say we need cumulative impacts, we need to, if we're looking at the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, how do we look at permitting and change those structures? Because what I think people don't understand is a lot of the environmental laws don't necessarily um, speak about preventing um, health, you know, harms to human health. They, you know, they look at incremental um, emissions and it's almost like how much pollution can we allow versus how many lives could we save if we said no. And that's, you know, something that environmental justice communities have been wanting for a long time, cumulative impacts. Even um, one um, thing that uh, the Biden administration wanted to introduce was um, the citizens or the, the, the the Climate Conservation Corps, which would be like a a recreation of the Conservation Corps that came out of the um, the New Deal. And that, you know, planted billions of trees in America. But it also, the Conservation Corps of the New Deal, it was incredibly racist. And a lot of Black people didn't have access to those jobs. And so um, the Biden administration wants to have the Climate Conservation Corps to do a lot of that reforestation work, to, to work in communities to really address the climate crisis through jobs for young people who are uh, and then people who are underemployed or not employed and that's a great idea but i know um, one thing peggy um has been trying to say was how do we bring that type of infrastructure to the to ej communities to the front line how do right. we that our, our kids who live in Southeast DC or live in Harlem or live in Chicago or live in you know Miami, um, the kids who live there, how do they get that exposure and then are allowed to help rebuild and clean up their own communities and benefit from that, that good paying um, job and opportunity that would then expose them to environmental jobs and environmental careers and conservation. So that's something we also want to... Um, We also want to like make sure that that program has a very big EJ focus. And just even like education around climate in the environment and literacy. And you know, already our education system is whack, right? And our kids are way behind mm-hmm. Asia and in and, and Europe in terms of math, reading, science, whatever the stems. But how are we, you know, gonna move to having all of these good paying jobs, solar panel, like to become a, a person who installs solar panels, you have to pass a test. You have to have, you know, you know, a certain level of math that a lot of our communities haven't been afforded because our schools are underfunded or don't have the same resources as someone else a zip code away. And like, we need to change the education system to prepare ourselves to be a part of the green economy and all of these jobs. So these are some of the things we're trying to think critically about. And, you know, even in this push to electrify our transportation sector, how are we doing that in a way that you know, addresses the emissions in our communities. Buses coming down 125th Street are polluting, you know, emitting whatever. How do we make sure that those, they're electric buses? How do we make sure they're electric school buses? So many of our kids have to get bused from one community to another. If you're spending an hour on a a bus that's diesel, what do you think is gonna happen to that child in terms of their exposure to asthma? Especially the kids on the back of the bus, Like, like, All of these things. Right. And so in the push to electrify, how do we do it in a way that addresses that harm? And then how do we do it in a way that we aren't left out? Like the electric vehicles aren't cheap. You know what I mean? Like I have a Toyota. I have a used Toyota. um, I have a um, Prius. I'm a nerd. I, You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's a little hatchback or whatever. And
1: I also just love how activists always got to make sure. Cause you know, if you, if you if you ask, I got me a twenty twenty one Tesla. They'd be oh boy, we gotta. You <laughs> they, 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 they be holding us, hold us accountable. So we got always the activists got to be like, I got me a nineteen eighty nine Prius,
0: third third hand used. I, it was my it's my first car. And but because I know and I care about, you know, fuel efficiency and not having to pay a lot of money at the gas pump and the emissions, you know, I got that car. And the Prius, I mean, it's not it's not ugly, but it ain't like it's not like a Camry, you know, it's not it's not, it's not a Tesla at all. It's not sexy. So but how do we make one how do we make them affordable and you know and make sure that we can also be a part of that transition too in terms of the infrastructure that's gonna pop up, you know, for um, having electric vehicles? It's 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 gonna be a challenge. So we wanna make sure that equity can be involved in all of those parts too.
1: It's clear you're excited about what President Biden and the administration is doing with the executive orders and particularly around environmental justice and that aspect. Um, are you as excited about what's hap- what what can happen with this Congress? Do you think it's too divided to create climate policy? And there does seem to be a lot of litigation that's still rolling over from the Trump administration um, in the courts. So, what are your thoughts on the on the legislative and and on the the court side of this process?
0: Well we lot law- well not we but the democrats did lose some seats in the house and then of course we have this 50-50 split in uh senate and legislation is so important you know executive orders determine how the federal government responds but we need legislation that will move us beyond a presidential term and right now with like
1: explain that we got a lot of folks I know listening are really Kind of trying to understand how does climate policy stuff works. Explain when you say beyond this presidential term, what does that mean when you say? Well,
0: that? for instance, we talked. I talked about Executive Order twelve eight nine eight, which was the executive order on environmental justice and how uh, federal actions on environmental justice, and that is as a federal um, as executive order. It can it the it was a priority of the Clinton administration, but George Bush and his father, you know, um, or George Bush after him, that wasn't a priority, you know, um, George W. Bush. And then Barack Obama, of course, when they, when he came in office, that became more of a priority. It was totally ignored during the Trump administration, but because there's no legal teeth to it, it's at the discretion of that president, whether or not they want to prioritize it or, or ignore it, or you could even, you know, just completely ignore it altogether. And so yes, the Biden administration rolled out some really good environmental justice language in that executive order. I mean, they use the word legacy pollution. When I saw that, I was like, my God, look at that. That's some impact right there. And, but we have to have, if if Biden leaves and we have a, a person who doesn't see environmental justice as a priority, again, we'll have that regression of federal policy. So legislation if we codified or made Executive Order 12898 a law, it would become the law of the land and it would determine how things happened throughout, you know, the entire country. And so we need that. And so like right now, Congressman uh, Donald McEachin, uh, Chairman Rahul, Rahul Garhalva, they introduced the environmental justice for all bill, which speaks to codifying Executive Order 12898, which speaks to creating um, and requiring cumulative impacts, which also um, speaks to a whole host of environmental justice um, policies that we've been asking for. And that's a very well-vetted bill. And so we want to see that pass. And the challenge is making the case for it in both the House, where even though there is still a progressive majority, with the Senate being 50-50, there's a challenge there. And, you know, we we mm. may be able to look to um, VP Kamala Harris as the deciding vote, but that's still the challenge. And there, there are people who might be a D or an R who may not see the value of environmental justice the same way. So without a larger majority, those types of bills that we believe are necessary and incredibly important will be, you know, will get stalled or maybe end up in just, you know, maybe in committee. So that is a challenge for us. And- with you know climate legislation and everyone wants to talk about ej everyone wants to (laughs) like how do we also make sure that you know there's only you know our office in dc it's four of us and there's so many bills and there's so many offices that are calling so maintaining our energy to respond to things appropriately and the capacity to do it like it's incredibly intense and so that's why we engage as many ej organizations to um, have those federal relationships to so that they themselves can advocate for things and push for things because we can't be in every room we try to be, but we can't be everywhere. And even um, you had asked about like judicial things, there's so many, important um, cases that came out of the Trump administration where now the Biden administration is like, well, we don't agree with that. So there's an an opportunity to take a step back and to look at some of the decisions like around PFAS, which are really harmful chemicals that are in like our pots and pans and so many uh, products that we purchase, and also like fire, um, fire, department, the the extinguishers, there's so many places where PFOS is used, but it exposes us and it's our exposures are so high. And so there's so many cases that the Trump administration, when they tried to uh, resend rules or introduce new rules, like around fuel efficiency standard, all of these things that are being pushed back now because the administration changes. And they say all the time, like, um, you know, like elections have um,
1: consequences,
0: consequences, and the consequence of this election is we're seeing this dramatic one eighty hmm. to fix and resolve. And I'm sure the first year, the first two years, will literally be about fixing and resolving things, and and then also trying to move us forward. So that's why I think the speed is there, but it's intense. I can't even lie; it's super. No, tough.
1: it is. Well, I'll say this: you know, uh, as you know, Kareem, I have been um, arrested. Quite a few times fighting for climate justice.
0: I've never been arrested. uh... What did you like? (laughs)
1: You really? Oh, you gotta hang with me then. Listen, oh, no. now, now that I know that, I'm making sure you gon' you I'm making sure you get locked up. We we gonna make sure that happens. You gonna we going into the guy. We gonna you got you ain't lived till you see the back of a, a, a paddy wagon. Yeah, no, no. You gotta it's tight back there. Oh, wait. But uh but I'm making sure. But uh one of the I mean all, all over the place been arrested, obviously, fighting this good fight. But one of the places I was arrested was actually at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission outside of FERC. FERC! Yeah, because of the pipeline fights. Um, and now I always knew FERC because I know they're the ones who grant the pipelines. But what is what is FERC? Uh, and also I know that they had an important EJ development. What What is
0: that? So I am still learning about FERC. FERC is an independent agency, to your point. They look at um, wholesale regulation of the energy market. And um, that also then trickles down to what we pay um, as consumers. But it's more about like the wholesale retail side, still trying to learn. But then to your point about the placements of pipelines, that's another EJ issue that interacts uh, with communities. And many people feel like FERC has just been like a rubber stamp for the utility and for um, fossil fuels and and, and that whole sector. And um, at the end of last year, uh, in the big um, COVID relief bill, there was a big section on energy and it, the omnibus is what they call it. And there was some language that said that FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, needs to um, finally set up the Office of Public Participation. And it was like, what? There's an Office of Public Participation? And apparently when that um, off that, there's been a demand on that since like 1978 and they've never done it. And so now here's this key opportunity to create a place for communities to engage around pipeline, mm-hmm. around, you know, more renewables. And just yesterday, uh, chairman of uh, FERC, Richard Glick, he's the new chairman. Um, when things rolled over to the Biden administration, he made an announcement that FERC um, is serious about environmental justice and that they will be creating a senior position to deal with environmental justice. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, this is, and I, I'm st- I'm gonna be reading all about FERC this weekend because I want I want to figure out how more EJ groups can can participate in that. So I'm gonna bug you after this to learn more about your time with FERC. Um, yeah,
1: definitely. No, let's let's
0: talk more about it because there again the it's like. If anyone's a nerd and remembers, like um, Game of Thrones, when the Eye of Sauron like turned, <laughs> it, it's like the Eye of the country is turning to environmental justice <laughs> right now. <laughs> And so the window for us to do stuff is so small, but it it feels like the ability for us to change some things is pretty wide and mag, like the magnitude is huge. So like, I need to learn about FERC. I need to learn more about appropriations because there's this budget reconciliation process and we want to figure out how to get more EJ things covered. Like there's so many things because everyone wants to talk about EJ.
1: Like, Oh, I love it. I love it. And definitely, we will have we we will have call me anytime and i'll tell you i'll tell you my side of FERC and, and my side in the paddy wagon outside FERC. <laughs> and and hopefully next time if FERC don't do right uh we will we'll, we'll, we'll be we'll be right back outside uh FERC. they right down there by if you're in washington dc they're right there by Union. i know right, right where they are by union station and uh, we're going to be right there uh protesting FERC, if they don't get it right but right now with this new administration, look like FERC is getting it
0: together. FERC is getting it like, together, and a new yeah. seat's gonna come up. Uh, there's there's a commissioner who actually was demoted because <laughs> Trump didn't like him talking about uh, renewables and diversity. Um, his seat comes up in June, and it's like, how do we get someone who's more friendly to EJ in this?
1: Yeah, and no, we'll that's a great, so we got we, we definitely gotta return and get back on that. Corrine, this is my last question for you. Thank you so much for just being you and your time. Um, It's really one goes here. It's just like uh, for black people, for black folk, as they say, liberation has always been centered. Uh, Young black people in this movement are pushing for a liberation framework. After finally getting to a point where justice is centered, what are your thoughts on moving from justice to liberation? And what does the policy look like in that process?
0: Justice to liberation. I'm still thinking we still are looking for justice, right? Um, it It's more of us doing this work. It's more of us getting, not only installing solar, but owning the companies. Um, it's more of us getting into wind. It's more of us getting in front of FERC and and telling our issues. It's just more of us. And, you know, it's always... I'm always clear that not every, you know, skin folk ain't always kin folk. You know what mm. I mean?
1: I know that's right. All our skin folk ain't our kin folk. Thank you so much, Kareem, for your amazing analysis. Our guest today is Kareem Taylor, the Director of Federal Legislative Affairs at WE Act for Environmental Justice. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.